0: Welcome to the podcast of Scott Street MB Church. We hope you find this message inspiring and encouraging in your walk as a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. And good morning to everyone here and at Tabor Manor and my daddy in Nova Scotia. He's watching online. It is my privilege this morning to continue our series on the Mennonite Brethren Professions of Faith. And as you may have guessed from the scripture reading, we're going to be looking at the word of God. And this is what the M.B. Article 2 of the Profession of Faith says. We believe that the entire Bible was inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit guides the community of faith in the interpretation of scripture. The person, teaching, and life of Jesus Christ... Bring continuity and clarity to both the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament bears witness to Christ, and Christ is the one whom the New Testament proclaims. We accept the Bible as the infallible Word of God and the authoritative guide for faith and practice. So in hearing these two descriptions of God's word, the one that, that John read from, from Hebrews and this from the Mennonite Brethren Profession of Faith, we affirm those words. But it's so interesting how rarely we delve into how we actually came to have God's word. This, this thing that we hold in our, our hands, that's in front of us, if you're like me, You may have contributed to the Bible being the best-selling book in the world. I have over 10 translations, and they're in different sizes. I don't know how many of you have more than one, more than two, more than three. So there's probably maybe four or 500 (laughs) Bibles represented just in what's here. And in our homes and in our families. I've never been without a Bible. And when I was growing up, I heard missionaries talk about Bible translations and the years it took to translate even just one book of the New Testament into a language. Having never been without a Bible myself, it wasn't until I attended the dedication of the Maasai Bible in Kenya in 1992 that I realized what I had taken for granted. The Maasai are a nomadic tribe in Kenya and Tanzania, and they're known for being very fierce people. Rob and I had a friend, Josiah, there on the right, who was working with the Kenyan Bible Society. And he invited us to this launching of the Maasai Bible. And it was pretty incredible to be with a group of people who were receiving the whole word of God in their own language for the first time. Every Maasai's favorite color is red. They can see each other easily across the savanna. So all the Bibles were covered in red. We witnessed the end of a process that had started in the late 1800s with the Maasai New Testament being launched in 1905. It took another 87 years for the Old Testament to be completed. So the Maasai got their Bible 609 years after the first English Bible was completed in 1388. I'm afraid I'm going to have to throw a lot of dates and a lot of names of both people and places at you. But I hope you hear underneath it all the lengths to which God went to make sure that we have this today. So how did we get the Bible? Over a 1,500-year span, from 14 BC to 100 AD, over 40 generations, 40, over 40 authors from so many different walks of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, prophets, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars, in different places, wilderness, dungeons, and palaces, at different times, war, and peace, even famine in different moods, heights of joy, depths of despair, and three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The starting point of our Bible is preceded and determined by another story, the history of ancient books and writing. And I'm afraid it is necessary to know a little bit of that history for us to understand how the Bible came to us. And the the Bible is composed of documents which were not only written a a long time ago, but then have been transmitted and preserved through the years by means of writing. No one knows when writing began, but it was widespread in Mesopotamia, what is now the region of Iraq, Kuwait, and parts of Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Turkey now. And as I said, it was widespread by 3,000 B.C., And even now, there's an abundance of clay tablets that have been found and are still being found dated from that time. We also know that Egyptian texts go back even farther and have survived in hieroglyphs on monuments, temples, and tombs. And somewhere between Egypt and Mesopotamia, in the area of Syria-Palestine, some Semitic person or persons, a Jew or Arab today, developed the alphabet about 1750 B.C., And from this first alphabet, all other alphabets are derived. And the best examples of these alphabets are so-called proto sinaitic inscriptions. And they're just a small group of rock-carved graffiti, yay graffiti, Uh, dating back to 1500 B.C. And these inscriptions are located, so interestingly, just about 100 kilometers from the traditional site of Mount Sinai. From these inscriptions, we know that writing was practiced many centuries before Moses, who was the author of the first five books of our Bible, the Pentateuch. Both history and the Bible tell us of different kinds of material used for writing. Stone was the oldest, even now the the oldest substantial portions of Hebrew writing were found in Palestine on stone. What do we know ten things were written on in the Bible? The commandments, stone. Clay was the most common writing material in Mesopotamia, and they were so they're so durable that over half a million or more of them have survived even till now. In Greek and Roman times, a whitened board was used for public notices, and this was called an album, and it was made from wood and wax, wood with a layer of wax. At the death of Christ, the inscription on the cross was likely written on a whitewashed board. Metal was used in Greece and Rome as treaties, and decrees were frequently inscribed on bronze tablets. Roman soldiers, at the time of their discharge, were presented with small bronze tablets called diplomas, granting them special privileges and citizenship. And then there's potsherds or ostraca, small just pieces of, of various bits of things. And they were used as much as we would use scrap paper today. And 25 or more of them have been found with short passages of the New Testament inscribed on them. Earlier, interestingly, in the 5th century BC, the people of Athens ostracized their unpopular fellow citizens by writing the names of those to be banished on ostraca. Of course, these writing materials have distinct disadvantages. They could only bear a few words and they were bulky and heavy and breakable. In the case of clay, a lengthy text would require a whole wheelbarrow of tablets. So, People being people, they kept trying to find a different way and a different material to write on, and they found papyrus, from which our word paper is derived. Biblos was a Greek term for papyrus. Biblion was the word for papyrus roll. Biblia, plural for papyrus rolls, meant simply the books. It was but a few more steps for the Bible to, to come to mean the book of sacred scripture. And then animal skins. They were used as a writing material in Egypt as far back as 2500 BC. The Jewish Talmud, a code of traditional laws, required explicitly that the Torah, the law, be copied on animal skins. When Paul, in 2 Timothy 4.13 request that the parchments be sent to him, he may be speaking of portions of the Old Testament that were on animal skins. The books of the Bible came into being separately and under varying conditions, and where the use of papyrus and leather or parchments prevailed, the books took the form of a roll or scroll. Sheets were glued end to end with the writing on one side arranged in columns about three or four inches wide, These rolls would ordinarily be no longer than 35 feet long and 9 to 10 inches high, and they were incredibly awkward to read. So the use of papyrus gave way to parchment, and the roll form gave way to the book, called the Codex originally, which was a term for the Roman writing tablet, and it came to be used for a book with leaves or pages. And more and more, historians are finding out that the Codex might well have been a Christian innovation. And if not, we know that Christians were the first to make extensive use of the Codex. According to the Bible, God's first communication with humankind was oral. The time came when it was necessary for the divine will to be put into a more permanent form and a record of God's revelations be made for succeeding generations. Moses is the first writer mentioned in the Bible. When divine revelation was put in writing, it was natural for other revelations and events to be recorded. And so we see in Joshua 24 that the successor of Moses, Joshua, also wrote in the book of the law of God. And this then became the practice for future men and writers who wrote both history and prophecy. This collection that became the Old Testament scriptures was basically assembled by the time of Ezra in 400 BC. And the Jewish authority Josephus, who wrote between the two Old Old and New Testament eras, said that no book was added to the Hebrew scriptures after the time of Malachi. We have a number of scriptures that still exist that form the basis of the Old Testament. The first is the 10th century Aleppo Codex, named after the city in Syria, Aleppo, where it is found. And it was a beautifully written codex, codex of the entire Hebrew Bible. In 1947, when the United Nations decided to partition Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state, Arab mobs who were looting and burning and killing destroyed all the synagogues in Aleppo including the 1,500-year-old Musariba Synagogue. And found in the ashes was the Aleppo Codex, a quarter of which had been destroyed. The second is the Leningrad Codex. It's now our oldest complete manuscript of the Hebrew Bible. It was written in Cairo about the year 1010, 1010, and it's now at the National Library in St. Petersburg. And you've probably all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in some jar clays by a Bedouin shepherd boy who was looking for a lost goat in March of 1948. Those Dead Sea Scrolls eventually made their way to Bethlehem. They were sold and bought, sold and bought repeatedly for a number of years and finally found their home in a museum in Jerusalem built especially for them called the Shrine of the Book. Since that discovery, about 800 more scrolls and thousands of fragments have been found in 10 more caves at Qumran, where the original scrolls, scrolls pardon me, were found. One of the most important Bible translations ever made was the Septuagint, the translate, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. We need to try to remember that further on. There is some mythology surrounding this translation, as a letter written by a Jew from Alexandria named Aristeas between 285 and 247 B.C., has a tone that reads more like legend than fact. But the gist is that 72 elders, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, were selected as translators and dispatched to Egypt, carrying with them a beautiful copy of the Jewish law, the Pentateuch. Seemingly, two of the men got lost. I won't make a joke. And only 70 arrived in Egypt, just the name, thus the name, Septuagint, 70. Though Aristeas only mentioned the law being translated, most scholars agree that before the dawn of the Christian era, the entire Old Testament was accessible in Greek. And for a while, the Septuagint was the only Bible for the early church, And it was the text most often quoted by the apostles and inspired writers of the New Testament, including Paul. (laughs) Like the Old Testament, the New Testament books came into being gradually, but they were written in a much shorter time, really only 50 years, between A.D. 50 and 100. And the books were mostly written by inspired men and addressed to different churches and individuals. From the first, though, they were looked upon as being distinctly authoritative writings and were received with respect and read in public assemblies. At first, oral accounts of Jesus' work by eyewitnesses filled the needs of the infant church, but as years passed and eyewitnesses' accounts became fewer and insufficient, the demand rose for authoritative written narratives. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John filled this demand, And even this morning in our family life hour in Hades class, we read the first few verses of Luke, and you can see the lengths to which he went to make sure he had the information he needed to write his gospel. And so we have the gospels and then the book of Acts, the story of the primitive church was added, and then at the culmination was the collection that became the book of Revelation, this vision of the triumphant Christ. The result was that a new community of people just like the people of the Old Covenant had their treasured writings, their own scripture. Hebrew is the language of almost all the Old Testament. Aramaic is a kindred language of Hebrew, and often after the time of exile, uh, sorry, after the time of exile, when the Jews were living in Egypt, around 500 BC, it became the common tongue in Palestine. It was the everyday language and even now, the New Testament preserves some of Jesus' expressions, such as kumi," little girl get up, in Mark five forty one, And abba, for father, is actually an Aramaic word. And maranatha, which means our Lord come. When do we normally hear maranatha? Communion service. Although the spoken language of Jesus was Aramaic, the New Testament books were written in Greek because it was the universal language of the day. But interestingly, the Greek New Testament has peculiar Jewish elements, as most of its authors were Jewish, and they thought and wrote in the idioms of their mother tongue. So we see this in phrases such as, Truly I say to you, it came to pass, and behold. The importance of the scribes in the Bible really can't be emphasized enough. In Mesopotamia and Egypt, a trained scribe was highly prized. They had work for the whole of their lives. In Palestine, professional scribes were responsible for writing and copying most of the Hebrew documents. They worked in a room called a scriptorium where they would listen to a reader and as he read out loud from the text, they would copy it down. The earliest copies of Christian writings were probably made for the local churches by some member of their congregations. And as the number of Christians grew, so did the demand for uh, translations in other languages. A scribe would sit on a bench or a stool, perhaps with something under his feet to raise his legs, with the codec laid across his knees. The picture we have here is really more from um, medieval times. There's no recorded picture that's being found of scribes from the time I'm describing. The scribe's pen was a reed. A thick length of grass sharpened and slipped to form a nib. His ink was a carbon ink, black color made from soot mixed with water and gum. And he would have a ruler for making the lines on his parchment, a sponge for an eraser, a pen knife to sharpen the pen, and a piece of pumice to smooth his pen or his writing service. With the exception of recent discoveries, our earliest Hebrew manuscripts date no farther back than the 9th century, which leads a rather wide separation of centuries between the original manuscripts and ours of today. And this could be alarming, but for the care taken by the Jewish scribes as they made copies of the scriptures, their ideal was perfection, and evidence of this is found in the Talmud the Jewish civil and religious law where rigid precautions were laid down for the preparation of copies of the Pentateuch to be used in the synagogue and this is just a short, short section, it's a very long one. The synagogue roll must be written on the skins of clean animals prepared for the particular use of the synagogue by a Jew. They must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns, equal throughout the entire codex. The ink should be black, no other color. No word or letter must be written from memory. Between every consonant, the space of a hair or a thread must intervene. Between every word, the breadth of a narrow consonant, and so on. These strict regulations played a major role in guaranteeing the accurate transmission of the Old Testament text. So here we see how God even used the Old Covenant to make sure we would have his word even now. There are many manuscripts of the New Testament scriptures, but there are only there are three important ones, and all of them are in Greek. The 4th century Vatican manuscript, which is in the Vatican. The 4th century Sinaiticus. Sinatic, pardon me, found at St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai in Egypt. It's in the British Library. And the 5th century Alexandrian, which is in Alex, was found in Alexandria, Egypt, and is now the property of the British Museum. And as you may have started to be hearing in the news, lots of these places where such important discoveries were made are asking for those things back. So if you want to go see them go to London, where you can see almost all of them in one place now before you have to travel around the world. These three manuscripts provide the main foundation for our New Testament books. Pardon me. In AD 180, persecution broke out out against the church in Numidia, North Africa. And there, in a small town called Silium, Christians were arrested put on trial, and then decapitated in nearby Carthage. A record of this trial survives. Speratus, one of the Christians, was asked what he had in his chest that he carried with him. He replied, books and letters of Paul, just a man. The books to which Speratus referred were undoubtedly translations in Latin, for it's unlikely that the people in Cilium knew Greek. So by this time, 180 years after Jesus died, Paul's letters existed in Latin, and probably the Gospels as well. And what ended up happening was so many people kept rewriting in Latin, and they ended up with manuscripts that were no longer agreeing with each other. And and, and so they had all these variant readings amongst the Latin manuscripts. So this set the stage for a man named Jerome to create the Latin Vulgate, which means Vulgate or Vulgata, means common or commonly accepted. He was born in 345 northwest of modern Greece. When he was 12, his parents sent him him to Rome where he studied advanced Latin grammar, Greek, and Latin uh, classics, and he was going to become a lawyer. He was only nominally Christian. When he left Rome, he, was, he went to Antioch and had a dream where he was asked to state his condition. He replied that he was a Christian, but the divine response was that he was lying. The dream was a shattering experience, and he divided, decided to devote the rest of his life to the study of the scriptures. He went to live with Syrian hermits, where under the guidance of a converted Jew, he began to learn Hebrew. And then a bishop of Rome in 382 saw the need to draw together the various old Latin translations into one official edition. He chose Jerome. Jerome finished his revision of the four gospels, and then that bishop, Bishop Damasus, in 1984, two two years later, died. And with him went Jerome's prestige and his protection. Much, there was so much resistance against him and what the work he was doing that he was forced to leave Rome. So he moved to Bethlehem, where most people believe he lived in a cave. Rob and I have been in the cave. And he continued working. He completed the Old Testament. He originally started his translation of the Old Testament based on the Septuagint, which, you, if you remember, was in Greek. He then decided that the ultimate authority for the Old Testament book should be Hebrew, and so he started over again, and it took him 15 more years. And it took another six, 700 years for a gathering of church leaders in Trent to actually authorize that version. That Vulgate reigned as the Bible of Western Europe for 1,000 years, and it was also the first book of importance to be printed by Johann Gutenberg in Mons, Germany, in 19, uh, 19, 1456, the Gutenberg Bible. Many words in English translations are due to the Latin Vulgate. Congregation, conversion, ministry, testament, and calvary are all a few. The Vulgate made, became the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church and remains so today. The result is that the Roman Catholic Bible in English is a translation of a translation. And it's not a translation from the original English, uh, sorry, original languages. So eventually, there came to be a canon and of, of books that was accepted as our scripture. The Greek word canon and the Hebrew word kane both mean read. Our English word cane comes from this word and a reed was used as a measuring rod and came to mean a standard or rule and then later came to mean a list or index and then that became the list of books included in the Bible. And this formation of the canon was a long process and gradual, but by Jesus' birth it is evident that the Old Testament canon was well defined. And there are lots of uh, old. There are lots of quotations found in the New Testament of the Old Testament, which further um, confirms this. There was such a huge need for these New Testament books, though, that they were just being read. Forget publishing; they were being read, and they were held in high esteem by early Christians. And the words of Jesus and the apostles were no less authoritative than the Old Testament. And this is how the New Testament canon gradually shook, took place. took shape, pardon me, again. I keep saying pardon me. I'm trying to get through <laughs> so much information. Oh, but it's, it's a wonder to me that when, Christi- when Christianity came to Britain no later than the third century, um, the, the language of the Bible then was Latin. And so few people could read it. And so many people were illiterate. And it was in England where the battle was fought and won for the right of common people, for us, to have the language in our own language, the Bible in our own language. John Wycliffe, who lived from 1330 to 1384, knew an England full of unrest, largely due to the Roman Pope's excessive demands for money. Wycliffe was a scholar and a teacher. He was... Teaching in Oxford, he took a stand against the church and fought for social and religious reforms. And he and his friends started England's fourteenth century Great Revival. And it was he that believed that every person person could understand the scriptures and deserve to have it in his or her own language. So he and his students started to make a translation from Latin into English, which was completed in 1382. However, the true father of the English Bible is William Timbale. He studied at Oxford and Cambridge and had the ambition to give the English people a translation based on the original Hebrew and Greek rather than Latin. He left England in 1524 completed his translation in Germany the next year and tried to have it printed. He was a friend of Martin Luther who himself had recently finished a translation in German. He was run out of Cologne carrying sheets of his newly printed New Testament. He went to Worms, a city that supported the Reformation where the printing of his New Testament was completed. In 1526, the first copies were smuggled into England and immediately became a bestseller. And officials of the Roman Catholic Church condemned the translation, but no matter what they did, they could not wipe out a movement that was making itself felt around the world. Tyndale continued translating the Old Testament, but in 1535, he was betrayed, Judas-like, and was imprisoned near Brussels. He suffered much even before his imprisonment, and he was determined that the Bible should not be in the language of the scholars, but in the spoken language of the people. He, in his translation, used the word congregation as well. Used it instead of church. He used love instead of charity, repentance instead of penance. He also coined such words as Passover and scapegoat. On the morning of October, uh, October morning, pardon me, in 1536, Tyndale went to the stake where he was strangled and burned, crying out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. In 1604, the eyes of King James were opened. He summoned a meeting of diverse religious groups to discuss the question of religious toleration, and the possibility of a new translation was raised, which the King welcomed. He knew that the only way to satisfy all the parties was to minimize the power of any one group's viewpoint. Such provisions for the new translation were probably the wisest thing that the otherwise unwise king ever did. 48 Greek and Hebrew scholars were selected and divided into teams. In 1611, the first copies of the King James Version were came from the press, and within a few decades, it was the translation for English-speaking people around the world. As I mentioned at the beginning, there are still 193 million people who can't read the Bible in their own language. Our friend Josiah visited a Maasai woman soon after the dedication of the whole Bible, she kept her Bible open in front of a window so that the the wind would blow across it and bless her. When she picked up the Bible in front of Josiah, it was upside down. And she couldn't read it. So Josiah took upon it upon himself to create a literacy program for people like her so she could read the word for herself and not just depend on the wind to bless her. When we hold this, we hold God's handiwork. Sorry. He used clay and metal and papyrus and parchment and reeds, And he used scribes and scrolls. He used codexes and today he uses cell phones. He used a shepherd looking for that one goat. He used a dream and he used a betrayal. They're also biblical. And so we can't just hold it. We have to read it and, in a sense, become it. As the Mennonite Brethren article states, the Old Testament bears witness to Christ. The New Testament proclaims him. And who is next in the line? It's us. We are, bear wit- we are the ones to bear witness to Christ and proclaim him. God uses us, as Hebrews said, to make his word living and active. We become his living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword, and sometimes we have to be that two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts and those of others. He's a good father. He's given us his love letter. Amen.